This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. All right, welcome back to another episode of Tell Me This. I don't know what number episode this is, Danielle, but I am super psyched we are in the middle of the Paradox playlist. So it's it's been amazing so far. What do you think? I was just saying as right before we hit record how I'm both excited. Eh, parado- it's not really paradoxical, but both excited and sad that <laughs> we are finishing up our interviews and I'm excited that our listeners get to hear about the experts we're talking to and just yeah. learn from the inspiration. Yeah. So totally agree. Exciting. Yeah, I did. I know we're recording some of these things sort of simultaneously. So I just wrapped up the the September episode and I was saying, you know, introducing and reminding people that next week it starts. Right. And mm-hmm. I feel like our listeners are going to be like, finally, they've been talking about it for, for weeks. So if you can tell, we're super excited. So, and we are especially excited. And really this one, um, the connection is really Danielle's, but I get the pr- pleasure of introducing this person. So we had the pleasure and privilege really to talk to Dr. Mamie Hostetter. Um, she assumed the role of president of Relay University in 2018, having previously served as Relay's national dean, dean of Relay New York City, and founding director of teaching and learning in the decade prior. Additionally, Hostetter serves on the board of deans for Impact, where she was a founding member, as well as on the board of directors at Sensibility before joining Relay in 2008. She conducted reading development research in the Gabrielli laboratory of MIT's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. Prior to that, she taught English and coached everything at KIPP Academy in the South Bronx and Deerfield Academy in Western Massachusetts. She earned her AB in English and American Literature from Harvard College and her EDM from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where she was in an Urban Scholars Fellow in the Mind, Brain, and Education program, and she earned her doctorate from Teachers College at Columbia University. I don't know, uh, Danielle, she has been busy mm-hmm. <laughs> and continues to be busy. And so I would love for you to share. I mean, you go into some detail in the episode itself, but I would love for you to share just briefly, like the connection that you have um, with her. I met Mamie at the Character Lab Educator Summit a couple of years ago, and she had led the conference as part of Relay with Angela Duckworth from Character mm-hmm. Lab. And I was immediately struck by how much, how present Mamie was as a leader and how much she was doing to support her education, her educational organization. And I just remember in the audience, and you'll hear when in the interview when we talk about it, I just remember sitting in the audience next to one of my colleagues and thinking, how do I learn from her and how Mm. do I become a leader like her? So Mm. when we were launching this podcast series, I knew that she was going to be one of the first people that we'd reach out to. And she was so, she so humbly agreed to talk to us. And, you know, I'm just curious to see, we had talked a lot about a lot prior to the episode about some of the paradoxes that she modeled. So as someone who just met Mamie, what were some of your key takeaways? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, Danielle, because I, when I was listening to you, you know, speak with her about that connection you know, I I had a chance to speak with her in our pre-meeting, right? The meeting we had with her and then the, the hour-long conversation. And I felt the same way. Even over Zoom, I felt her presence and her, just her focus and really leaning in and listening to the conversation. And you're right, like so brilliant, so thoughtful and so humble mm-hmm. and not in a, 
just not, I'm not even gonna say not in a, but in an authentic way, like a really authentic way. And when she, and you'll hear in the episode, she, she, you know, we, we always ask our, our, our guests if they have anything they'd like to add, right. That we haven't asked them or didn't cover. And she's just so gracious and can see and find gratitude in what could have been, you know, an hour out of her day that took her away from really crazy, busy stuff at Relay. And she was really appreciative. And I just thought, how amazing that someone who's, you know, doing the work that she's doing, not only did she make the time for us and really contribute, she was, Mm -hmm. I felt like she was legitimately grateful for the opportunity to have the conversation. And I mean, again, you'll hear in the episode, I love that she, it, it made me feel really good that she said, she thought it was so wonderful that we were giving leaders an opportunity to have these kinds of conversations. And I hadn't, you know, I've thought about the benefits of these episodes and that hadn't been something I had articulated. So I was like, oh, that's such a, what a wonderful insight. Right. And I just, mm-hmm. I kind of held on to that for a couple of days and it, it brought some joy in my, you know, my little world. So how about you? What were you, I mean, you've, you've been around her, you know, you knew, you know, way more about her and had experiences with her before. Like what were your kind of impressions? Well, I think to echo everything you said, I appreciated the gratitude and the reflection. Mm. Those were two key takeaways I took from her in operationalizing, not only reckoning with paradoxes in her everyday life, but just in the way that perhaps grounded her as an effective leader. Mm. And when she talked about all the experiences and the examples and reflected on some of the questions that we asked, those seem to be the key ways that she's operationalized it. And I, um, you know, when we interviewed Iko in our, um, in our, one of our interviews, the, her way of grounding herself and discerning in our questions and being very critically reflective was also exemplified in Mamie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we're going through this and thinking about what themes emerge, those were themes that emerged for me. And we did, I, w- I want you to actually talk a little bit more about the expert and novice mm-hmm. paradox, but I do want to just echo that from my my sense and my perspective. There is this inherent sense of mastery that I see in her experience and in the way that Relay is exemplifying. Mm, um, yeah. And you see that, um, actually, I'll stop there because I know you're going to lead into my next <laughs> question and my next oh. thought. So I want to take the, I want to t- pass the mic back to you in terms of what that looked like in terms of novice and expert and how Mimi um, exemplified that. Yeah. It's so interesting that you mentioned mastery because this is sort of off the top of my head sort of thought, the more I think about the novice expert, multiple narratives that we've been exploring and and it's been on my mind a lot lately and I've been podcasting about it just in some of the shorts that I've done. It makes me think that your ability to really wrestle and manage the, the multiple narrative of novice expert contributes in really positive ways to mastery, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I've been thinking a lot about that and something that Mamie says, and if you read any article or interview with her, or even on some of the websites that share more information about her, um, she talks about, you know, one thing, well, many things that are unique about relay, but one thing she talks about is deliberate practice. Right. And exactly. I wanted to go. (laughs) (laughs) So she talks about how, you know, this steep learning curve of deliberate practice for, their residents and for particularly sort of the least experienced graduate students. And what she says is she's sold on the power of rehearsing teaching in the presence of experts. Uh-huh. And so as you'll hear, and I don't want to give a ton away, Danielle, but I, what I really, really appreciated about her work relay and this interview is she really gave us a chance to almost, I almost feel like open the hood like see underneath, like we talk about managing these multiple narratives and we talk about novice expert. She's like not only embodied it, but she's living it with her colleagues and with the students that come to relay. And really the the interview really digs into what does it look like to create spaces to do this? Cause like rehearsing teaching in the presence of experts. And I said this to her in the interview, like 
this doesn't just happen overnight. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I can do this. Right. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of pre-work. And so I just loved listening to sort of the prep and the work she's done. Um, I don't know, Danielle, I'm going on and on and this is supposed to be an intro, but something that keeps coming back to me is something that I heard the other day is that it takes time. And what time means is it takes time literally like creating space for that moment, the time, and it takes time over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and I feel like, and all I can say to that is, yep, that's what Relay University is doing. It's yep. they're taking the time and then they, and they know it takes time. Right. And the commitment. That's yes. not just something that they decided to change and see where it went. They mm-hmm. are deliberately doing this in all aspects and facets of the yes. university. And for those listeners, I know one of the key things that validated some of the research that I've already been thinking about, I mean, of course, deliberate practice by Dr. Anders Ericsson. Um, but what's inherent in that too is the vulnerability, the courage to make a mistake in that growth mindset. Yeah. And like you said, it is com- it is seen with commitment and consistency across all levels as this shared, almost like this shared vision and responsibility to do that work yeah. in order to show up eventually for the student because they're doing totally. it for the student. So I actually think I'm, I'm like trying to stop talking to you <laughs> because I don't want to give too much away because yeah. you just have to hear the story and just let it unfold. I know. Um, so yeah, it's a, it goes to show how much she we, we learned from her. In, in yeah, absolutely. Hour. Absolutely. I mean, I just think we were learning a lot from all these interviews. I feel like we could almost do a play by play, right? <laughs> like commentating over. We could be announcers. Interview. I mean, hello. Right. Good morning, America. <laughs> and if we talk about sports in this interview, so maybe <laughs> we do. Any That's right. Professional sports network. That's we're right. In. <laughs> That's right. We and I in in the episode I recorded today, I I referenced the love of metaphors and mm. Mamie's is all in with the sports metaphors, which I really, really appreciated. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, she's a, an individual who really does embody this managing of multiple narratives and being able to hold these things, not just in her own work, but with others. And Mm -hmm. she shares lots of really great examples of how she's doing this with her, her leadership team with colleagues with students and it really does trickle throughout um the organization and i i just yeah i feel like i learned a lot and just i'm grateful that we had the opportunity to speak with her you know for an hour so i think everybody's gonna love this interview so me too cool all right everybody so if you're home, sit back, relax, and listen to the episode. If you're running, just take it in and enjoy this as the the miles click through. And uh, yeah, this is Dr. Mamie Hostetter and our interview with her. So enjoy. Thanks, everybody. everybody welcome to another episode of tell me this the paradox playlist edition danielle i'm trying something different here so um i am your co-host carrie borkowski here with my co-host danielle scarano welcome danielle thank you i'm so excited to be here i am too i am super excited to have this conversation with dr mamie hostetter it's um i feel like i've gotten to read all about you mamie and talk to you in the pre-meeting and so it'll be really great to dig in so welcome Gary, Danielle, thank you. Great to be here with you, too. Yeah. So, so Dan- yes, Mamie. So, Carrie and I were talking, usually before each episode, we'll talk about how we're going to introduce the guest. And sometimes Carrie really wants to introduce the guest. And for me, I texted Carrie today and I said, I need to introduce Mamie because I need to start with the story of how we've met. And um, we, I actually mentioned this in our pre-recording meeting, Mamie, but 
I first met you at Character Lab. I, th- I think it was actually 2017. I actually had to go back into my doctor, my uh, graduate school records when I was taking stats at the time because I really was convinced I was going to fail. And you and Angela Duckworth had convinced me otherwise, and I ended up doing better than I thought. But you know, I attended the Ed Summit with Relay and Character Lab for I think three years. And later with you, obviously at Relay, learning about topics related to character and growth mindset. And you had such a unique and inspirational quality to instill this sense of belonging immediately as I met you. I mean, I felt immediately seen, valued, and heard. And then I looked around and the hundreds of educators sitting in that um, conference room in Philadelphia I could tell they also immediately felt seen, valued, and heard from you. So I was just in its immediate awe when I experienced the same feelings in others. And Carrie and I really want to know more about your background and how you developed as a leader. Um, and we'll talk about that in our intro and as you talk, as we answer some of our questions. But my question for you, and I think I've been wanting to ask this since 2017, as a leader for yourself, how do you define leadership and how you show up in the various contexts? Well, Danielle, first, thank you for the warm introduction. I loved getting to know you through uh, these years at the Educator Summit and beyond. And I think where you uh, you paid me a really nice compliment that uh, is actually part of my definition of leadership. I think first and foremost, being a leader is about being a great teammate. A leader is a part of the team. And so a great teammate is someone who, who makes others have a sense of belonging, who helps others to feel a sense of success, who thinks of the team as as much more important, much bigger than um, him or herself. And so I think we often try to differentiate the leader from the team, but to me, first and foremost, being a great leader is being a great teammate. And then I think as a leader, you have um, you have a real responsibility to do the best that you can for the team with the information that you have, a real responsibility to seek out the the best and uh, most relevant information that you can to seek out the perspectives of as many people on the team as possible, and then to to make a decision and move forward with the team, uh, regardless of what the the obstacles or the, the challenges are. And I think one of the things that's exciting to me about talking with you all is that um, I think as you move through that cycle, being the best that you can for your team, making the best choices with the info that you have and moving onward, I think it's it's crucial to be a learner as you lead. So I, I appreciate your intro and I appreciate you uh, saying the sense, naming the sense of belonging that you felt uh, as a participant in Ed Summit and in some classes I've taught because I think I think that's where that's where it all starts. I love that. And I love that you it was such a nice segue and we didn't even plan that maybe the idea of being a learner, because as you were describing the team and the leader really being a part of that team. I was also thinking back, we had a, com- a wonderful conversation with um, Miss Iko Bathia about her conception of leadership and this idea that you're able to, people trust you without coercion, right? That they, they, don't, they don't have to trust you. It's not forced upon them. They just do. And so I think, and she talked a lot about you know, the learning identity. And so one thing I found, Mamie, when I was reading some of your articles and interviews is you talked a couple of times about this idea of a steep learning curve for deliberate practices around teaching. And so you said that practice and rehearsing in front of experts is key. And so I would love for you to dig into that because I think what I'm hearing from you and what I'm learning about you is there's a lot more to that statement, right? Like in order for that to happen, you have to be able to embrace that learner, that that sort of expert novice paradox. And so I'm wondering, can you just sort of dig into that a little bit for me? Yeah, absolutely. I am, I hope a lifelong champion of feedback from experts, from colleagues, from fellow learners. I I have learned so much. I've learned everything I've learned from uh, other folks' guidance and feedback, right? And so I do think that there's this kind of false conception that, you know, the leader knows all the stuff and that the leader's supposed to uh, have all the right answers. And I just, I don't think that's, that's true at all. And, um, you know, just a couple examples from 
from even this week, right? The one thing that's been so beneficial to me in my leadership, particularly over these last couple of years, but at several junctures in my career, is to have a coach, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who's gone to a certain extent down similar paths further and sooner than I have, who's giving me guidance and feedback on the dilemmas and challenges and opportunities that um, that I have as the leader and that Replay has as an institution. And then similarly, uh, we had our we had our Relay staff launch today where we bring our whole team together at the start of the school year. And uh, anyone who's worked with me in the many, many staff launches that we've had <laughs> over the years at Relay knows that I am obsessively seeking out feedback on what mm -hmm. it is that I'm going to say, what it is that we're going to ask our staff to engage in over the course of the month. So I got just this week probably four different rounds of feedback on the the, the key messages and um, activities that we're asking our, our staff to engage in today. So I'm a huge proponent of feedback. Hmm. I have a question for you actually now that you're talking about the practice piece. Um, I remember when I had done some sessions at the Educator Summit and then with you specifically, Mamie, there was a moment of practice where we had a certain amount of time to pitch, I think it was define or explain growth mindset to a child. How would we do it? Identify that child. We'd get feedback and then we'd try it again. And to me, that was the scariest thing ever. I had already been teaching for like six or seven years at that point and was doing a lot of research on growth mindset. And to me, I don't know if it was this fear of being vulnerable or fear of the feedback, but there was this element of courage in it. And I'm just wondering if you can explain the purpose behind that process in that feedback loop and even the level of, um, I don't want to say improvisation, but there is some improvisational skill in there where you are quickly pr practicing and then you are just willing to be put on the spot and just say what you have. So I want to, I'm curious to dig into that process a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I can take zero credit for this, right? <laughs> this is based, this is based on the work of Anders Ericsson and the concept of deliberate practice more broadly, right? Which is the idea that, you know, to become to go from being novice in just about anything to being expert in just about anything, uh, it takes a lot of what Erickson would describe as deliberate practice. So that's practicing right at the edge of, uh, you know, the boundary between comfort and discomfort with respect <laughs> to the knowledge or the skill that you're trying to get better at. And at that growing edge, getting feedback from preferably an expert, right? Someone who's gone a little further or a little deeper than you have to date and trying it again, incorporating that feedback and doing it over and over and over. And it's a really, um, Danielle, to use your term, it's it's a scary process, mm -hmm. especially the first few times you engage in that, right? It's very vulnerable, right? You're, you mm -hmm. are deliberately choosing or, or, or being asked to <laughs> expose the part of the knowledge or skill that you're you're working on, right? Like you know going into that practice that you're not yet an expert in that area. So that is something that um, has really shaped Relay's philosophy um, and approach to developing new teachers and developing school leaders. Um, and it's also really shaped my philosophy of leadership, this idea that we all need deliberate practice, wherever we are in our career, whatever it is that we're trying to get better at. Hmm. So I am curious, and I feel like, Danielle, we're so privileged to talk to these amazing women this fall that, you know, many of you like yourself, maybe identify as learners, want the feedback. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, not everyone is in this space, right? Like, I mean, talking about feedback for one, like if, if for no other reason, oftentimes in education, feedback is really viewed as this scary, often, unfortunately, bad thing, right? That we all sort of grimace at we're worried about and I would argue and I've done presentations where actually it's a huge chance to create belonging and connection and communication if you use it right and so Mamie my question to you is if we think about either your moment personally or your team's moment like before a culture of lots of feet four rounds of feedback and being on the edge of comfort and discomfort what are you doing as an organization, as a leader, as a member of the team to almost prepare, right? To do some preparation. Like, what does that work look like to get to a space where you're like, yeah, feedback, bring it on, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And I think, um, 
you know, part of the opportunity that we have at Relay that I think probably not all institutions have is that this feedback culture is has, has always been part of how we prepare our teachers and how we prepare our leaders, right? To Danielle, your point earlier, it's it's I've I've yet to walk into a Relay graduate classroom where some form of practice with feedback and do it again isn't mm -hmm. happening. Like that's right. just the norm in our grad school classes. And that doesn't mean that it always makes the smooth transfer to the other parts of our work, right? That's <laughs> yeah. Teachers, preparing leaders, that's yes. the core of our work. That's the mission of our work. But, um, you know, it's a little harder and not as consistent to ask for that same approach to team meetings or tough decisions or moments of conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Giving people the same opportunity um, to get feedback and receive that as a gift rather than uh, a scold, giving folks the opportunity to to do it again or think about it again or come back to the group, right? I think that happens in our best moments at Relay, um, no matter where we are, whether we're in a graduate classroom or a senior leader meeting. And I think that's you know sort of part of our growing edge as an institution. How do we transfer that growth mindset that that commitment to deliberate practice to our work everywhere. And hmm. We have a lot to learn, I think, from our graduate students mm -hmm. and their quick adjustment and then quick, um, what is the word, their quick devotion to the idea of deliberate practice. I think we um, could be yet more devoted to it <laughs> in all parts of our work together. Yeah. You've made me to give you some insight, and Carrie, uh, obviously as we're recording, you just said three things within a sentence that spurred three questions, so I'm hoping that I'll stay on course <laughs> with my next question. <laughs> my first one is, I like how actually you talked about growth mindset, so I think that's something that um, will lead into my question, but you just spoke about, you spoke about times of conflict. When you talked about deliberate practice, you mentioned that edge of discomfort, and I'm hearing tension, I'm hearing conflict, I'm hearing discomfort. Obviously, it's much easier to perhaps practice deliberate practice when you feel a little more safe, even though it is extremely vulnerable and courageous. Um, but I'm just wondering what happens when you feel that sense of discomfort, tension, or conflict? And that's really, you think about the paradoxical thinking. How do you integrate perhaps multiple narratives or narratives that do seem to conflict and show up in, as your vulnerable self as a leader or within a community? Well, a couple things, Danielle, that your question makes me think about. Number one, the way we talk about deliberate practice in our graduate classrooms is Relay. We sometimes, we sometimes use the phrase, get it wrong here where the stakes are low, so you mm -hmm. get it right there in your classroom where the stakes are high. Mm -hmm. and that is very true for our graduate classrooms, right? Our graduate students are not teaching their pre-K-12 students in our graduate classrooms. They're gonna go do that the next morning or the next day. And so they do have this opportunity to practice in a, a safer environment, right? Um, but when I, if I go back to the, um, the sort of difference that we were talking about earlier between our graduate classrooms and you know, our meetings or our senior leader decision moments or our, you know, the, 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 the institutional direction, Right, those are places where the stakes are high. Right, that is, that is not practice. That is the real conversation. <laughs> that is the yeah. real moment of decision. That is the real institutional future. And I think that's in part why it's harder to make that transfer of deliberate practice, growth mindset, sense of safety from our graduate classrooms to some of the other environments where relay um, teammates and relay leaders are, are needing to make decisions, needing to move forward together, needing to needing to chart the the path for the institution. I think the other thing I would say, Danielle, in response to your question is that, you know, who has a sense of safety and belonging in any given environment um, is, is quite varied, right? And so if I lean one direction with my identity as a white leader in an institution, I'm certain that I'm afforded more safety, more sense of belonging, more comfort in a lot of rooms than my colleagues who do not identify as white. If I lean another direction with my identity as a female leader, I'm often in rooms with exclusively male colleagues, particularly rooms of external 
leaders, right, where I perhaps do not have quite as strong a sense of safety or belonging or comfort, right? And so it's much easier for me in the places where my racial identity is prominent, my leader identity is prominent to feel a sense of safety, belonging, so that I can take on more of that uh, deliberate practice approach, more of that growth mindset. It, it does not feel as easy to do that in environments where, um, you know, it's my less dominant identity markers, uh, whether that's being a woman or being a gay woman. When those things are what I'm feeling most prominently, it's much harder to engage in the deliberate practice kind of growth mindset approach. So I think that has to be something that whether we're leaders or teammates, we're thinking about constantly if we want to develop um, a growth mindset, deliberate practice culture, wherever we are, who feels safe, who feels a sense of belonging, um, such that they can make themselves vulnerable to be engaging in deliberate practice, to be engaging with a sense of growth mindset. Yeah, it reminded me of when David Yeager came to speak at the Educator Summit. I think it was 2019, maybe, he came. And that's, he, that's right. yeah, when he spoke, it was, it it resonated with me so much as an educator that culture and context matters so much with growth mindset and deliberate practice and that you can't divorce the culture of what's happening within and outside the school in order to cultivate growth mindset. So I appreciate you talking about that interrelationship of identity. Um, Carrie, did you have a follow-up question on that? Yeah, I saw I'm, your mind turning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me, Danielle, I'm always interested because I think our audience is, is sort of like brass tack sort of conversation too, right? Which is like, what does this look like in implementation? And, um, you know, Mamie, you said that it, it, you know, it feels like your graduate students really are embracing this deliberate practice and the feedback and being able to take that feedback. And, and I would say that you're being pretty humble and modest with respect to where this is showing up in other places. And so if you were, you know, advising me as a, a, a new leader or others in sort of starting this work with their teams, yeah. right. I'm just wondering what, what, what's your strategy? Because it feels like what you're describing at Relay is even though there are, you know, there's always going to be challenge points around feedback and discomfort. But I mean, on the whole, it seems like people are embracing this notion of feedback and learner mindset. And so I'm just wondering, I know it's not a, a linear process. I understand that. But like, can you give like a sense of like, what kinds of things should we be implementing? What kind of conversations should we be having? I know you're modeling it. So that's an, a wonderful way to do it. But what else could we could we share here? I do think it, um, I think it helps to have an institution with learning at its core, right? So Relay by definition, we're a graduate school of education. Um, we are devoted to being a learning institution, right? And so I think that part of our identity is, uh, is, is, is a helpful sort of cultivating factor for whether it's a deliberate practice sort of approach or mentality or, or a growth mindset. I think a, a culture of learning, uh, an institutional identity of learning is really probably the most important cultivating factor. But then I think it's, um, I think it starts with little things um, as just a really concrete example. We had, um, we had, as I was saying to you all, we had our staff launch today where the concluding the concluding session was hearing from our students and alums about what mm. their experience at Relay has meant for them, what feedback they have for us as an institution that would help them to become better teachers and leaders. And going into that session, uh, we had a little prep call for that group and the several Relay leaders who were leading the group. And we literally in that prep call practiced introducing ourselves and practiced telling the stories of our experience of the impact of Relay. Not just the panelists, but the Relay leaders who are going to be facilitating the panel. And so that's a very small example, but that's the kind of moment that permeates the institution, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of let's get it not just right, but let's get it better with the help of the other people in this room so that when it goes bigger, it goes to more people, it has a broader impact. We know it's it's gotten better as a result of this, this practice. Mm. I love that because it's really reflected in what you said earlier, Mamie, which is 
getting it wrong in a low stakes environment, getting it right in a high stakes. So that to me, that practice session that you described sounded like a very low risk place to sort of, you know, work things out, make a mistake. So I love that that sort of parallel to what you said about your grad students. Yeah, to echo that, I am very, I'm inspired by this deliberate, the the deliberate practice of practice. No, I'm just inspired by this intentionality on the practice. And I was listening to Brene Brown's podcast with her sister Barrett on the Dare to Lead podcast yesterday. And Brene talked about this incredible commitment to thought. And to me, that's where I'm hearing from you is that every bit of it is not careful. It's it's thoughtful. And it, you know, I love these conversations too because especially when I can come away with something that I can do tomorrow and I know that myself returning back to my professional environment, I know I'm going to be a little bit, just a little bit more thoughtful and I appreciate that from you, Mamie. The other thing that I'm really curious about, especially because, you know, I'm at Johns Hopkins, Carrie, you're um, in an institute of higher education at Johns Hopkins as a professor and um, director of the EDD program. And, you know, I, as I think about teacher preparation, I was reading an article, I think on the 70, it was on the 74 million yesterday. And it said something to the effect that Relay from the start was seeking to reinvent teacher preparation. And I love that concept of reinvention. And since I first heard about Relay, I've been fascinated by the way that you have so rapidly expanded across the country. And I'm just wondering, you know, as you have expanded, you understandably have a diversity of teacher candidates across geography, across background, across identity. How do you cultivate a community? And whether it is through managing multiple narratives, through a paradox or deliberate practice, how do you do that with, say, a teacher in rural Texas and a teacher or a principal or, or someone working in, in the New York City public schools in an urban district? How, how does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. You're totally right, Daniel. The, 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 the big headline of Relay's first decade was, was one of growth. We went from having 30 graduate students in my first class when I started as, uh, as a professor in 2008 to now having 4,000 graduate students across the country and another 1,200 or so principals in our principal program. And now we've got a short course professional ed for, for I think we've had almost 10,000 teachers come through our short course. So it has been um, a decade of really um, tremendous growth. And we've really intentionally over the last couple of years said, let's pause. Let's mm -hmm. learn from what this first 10 years has meant for us, has meant for our teachers, has meant for our leaders. We've learned a ton in the last decade where can we be most thoughtful? Where can we be most intentional? Where can we be most strategic about our impact and about access for teachers and leaders? So I think, um, Danielle, to your very particular question about what is it meant to be working with leaders in, and teachers in rural Texas and here in New York, where I'm less than a half mile from our, our main campus, um, we have done two things. Number one, wherever the relay students are, we try to have relay professors who have taught or led in that community themselves. Mm. I think this is a really uniquely defining chapter, or pardon me, uniquely defining element of the institution from inception. Professors at relay are folks who have been outstanding teachers and leaders in the communities where our graduate students and program and leading. Most of our professors are what more traditional institutions of higher ed would call clinical faculty, right? People who are leading our graduate classrooms because they were exceptionally successful in their K-12 classrooms and mm. K-12. So that's, that's one thing, right? Even though we have a national reach, we have a very um, context and community focused approach to um, our, our professors. Secondly, we have really consistent 
standards and expectations for what it means to be a professor at Relay. So whether you're a professor who's working with students in rural Texas or a professor who's working with students here in New York, you've experienced the same uh, Relay uh, faculty orientation. You've done some of that, especially in your first week on the job at Relay, painful <laughs> deliberate practice in front of your <laughs> colleagues. For most people, that is the first time they've had to do that in their career. And uh, Danielle, much as you described for yourself, it can be really scary. It can feel really vulnerable, particularly because you've just been hired to be a professor of education. You know everything, right? And then there you are having to introduce yourself with your professor's title and your professor role to your colleagues and you find yourself stumbling over your words, right? So <laughs> our, our professors could tell it much more humorously and vividly than I am. But we do a lot of practice with our professors, particularly early on in their careers, to make sure everybody's feeling like they can be their best, like they can um, give our students the best education and experience possible. Hmm. That's amazing. I just love that. I'm, I'm curious, Mamie, as you were talking, you know, something that came up and really was one of the impetuses for this, this series of podcasts is we read together really when um, Danielle was a student in my class we read an article about paradoxical leadership and it was really an article focused on how do leaders balance the sort of social right sort of piece of their work and the financial and what I'm hearing you say is and what I really appreciate about Relay and maybe didn't know as you're articulating is it really seems like you have this amazing privilege to pause and you seem like and I say you, I mean, the organization seems like a, a learning organization in the truest sense and very reflective, right? Like you're really thinking about what is our aim? What are our goals? And I'm wondering is to what do you contribute that? Like I'm thinking about, you know, you said you have many at the beginning of the interview, you said you have many people to whom you report, right? You have a board of trustees. And so it's, I would love to hear a little bit, you know, to the extent you can, I know some of that is, you know, privacy, et cetera, but I'm just wondering if it feels like perhaps your, your board of trustees must be a pretty amazing group that are, are in it, right? They, they buy into this learning, learning identity, et cetera. And so I was wondering if you could just talk about that balance and tension between the goals and wonderful things around learning and this, the reality of, of finances, right? Yeah, well, I think every leader uh, that you could ever talk to on this podcast has faced some version of the reality of finance <laughs> yeah. in the last couple of years, right? And so um, our board has been really supportive of where we see ourselves heading in the, in the next chapter of the institution. And they recognized, um, I think, really pre-pandemic the opportunity that um, online teaching and learning was going to afford, particularly adult learners, particularly adult learners in um, smaller cities or more rural areas. You know, at Relay, we really got our start, our teacher preparation programs in particular, in major metropolitan areas. And there was a lot of interest from more mid-sized cities or rural districts about sending teachers to relay and we just didn't really have a way to be working with or providing access to those teachers and so I think in many ways our board was prescient about the opportunity that uh, that online learning could afford teachers outside of the major metro areas where we initially set up shop and I'm grateful to them and that that was um, that was part of the reason why when the the pandemic struck we um, we're fortunate to be in the position of having already had a small online only campus for a couple of years prior. And that group of faculty who had really spent the last, you know, those two years before the pandemic, honing their skills in online teaching and learning, that group of faculty put on uh, essentially boot camps for the rest <laughs> of our faculty across the institution. Yeah. And all of us, uh, I'm, I'm, speaking the first person singular, you know, this old timer who is used to <laughs> front of classroom, you know, like whiteboard was the innovation of my, my era as a class classroom teacher. But these folks are our online faculty really helped all of us to become much more adept very quickly at online teaching and learning. And it's, it's, it's that kind of innovation. It's that kind of teamwork. Um, and it's that kind of, um, it's that kind of opportunity for our students that I think our board uh, foresaw and has been really supportive of in this in this last couple of years in particular. 
So I want to dig a little deeper. (laughs) I love this. And you said innovation. How do you, again, in respect to privacy of of your top leadership positions and board, I want to be a fly in the wall in some of those leadership discussions. How are you even making those innovative decisions? How are you making room for the entrepreneurship of that small online learning system or just cultivating that sense of entrepreneurship or growth in the organization as a whole? Yeah, well, that let's go with that um, online campus as a result. And now online campus is a bit of a misnomer. We can talk about that later. But originally, that's what we were thinking of it as our, our Relay online campus as, you know, compared to our Relay New York campus or our Relay Memphis campus or our Relay Houston campus. Relay online campus was really very much a dual inspiration of both a couple of our professors who had been um, of their own accord pursuing online doctorates. And in fact, one was pursuing her online doctorate at Johns Hopkins. In, woo woo! Uh, Sorry, I just had to do it. Your school. And I think I was on her committee. <laughs> great. Yeah, so then uh, Alice Waldron um, essentially said, hey, you know, we could be offering more access to more teachers if we try out a fully online approach to our program. And at the same time, our board, and in particular, our board chair, Norman Atkins, who is my predecessor as Relay's founding president, was saying, you know, I think there's more that we could be doing with online teaching and learning. And it was really through Alice's leadership and innovation and Norman and the boards that we got that online campus up and running a few years before the pandemic. And they had just really outstanding results in their first couple of years running that online campus, really through the roof student experience, same or better student outcomes as our other campuses. And so when the pandemic um, struck, it was not our intention ever to become a fully online institution, uh, but we saw the advantages and the opportunities uh, for our students that Relay Online had already started to prove. And uh, it was it was pretty clear pretty quickly that this um, that this could be an advantage and an opportunity for all of our students and and more students than we were currently serving. I love that illustration, um, Mamie and Danielle. And Danielle, it reminds me of our intro to this series because we had talked about, you know, the if if we geek out on the the academic literature a little bit, right? The literature tells us that when you can hold space for these multiple narratives and paradox that creativity and innovation really do emerge. And so maybe it makes me think back to you talked about, you know, students doing practice with low stakes, your team doing practice with low with low risk. And it just makes me think that, you know, I just want everyone out there to hear this, that, you know, investing that time in practice, you may not see what's going to be the result, but like, I'm Alice Waldron. I mean, look, I'm just gonna say she's an amazing human being and brilliant. Like I was so privileged to work with her. And it does make you wonder, though, like without all the the practice and the knowing that she could take a risk, like some people wouldn't have been willing to offer that up because that's a high risk moment. And so I think it's really cool to see how the work you and others have been doing at Relay really has paid in dividends for you guys. And you're coming up with these amazing ideas and innovations. So just wanted to observe that with you. <laughs> the other piece that I want to add to it, we talked back to the literature and you talked about being a teammate. You I, Actually, here's another paradox, being a teammate and a leader as opposed to leader-follower dichotomy. I think that that's the teammate-leader identity is really important. And in holding multiple narratives, you talked about gaining multiple perspectives. It reminded me of the leadership framework, adaptive leadership. And Nelson and Squires is one of the articles that we read. Thank you, Carrie. I've just um, practiced. I always like to practice citing, maybe because when I was taking my comps at Hopkins, Carrie's obviously on my committee, and just like to name drop citations. But back to the adaptive leadership. They talk about, um, and maybe it wasn't Nelson and Squires, maybe it was another Lefferts, but they talk about getting on the dance floor and being on the balcony. And I was, again, listening to Brene Brown's podcast, and she used that same, um, that same message of being in the balcony and also being on the dance floor. And to me, that's such a powerful way to gain multiple perspectives. So I'm wondering, 
when you as a leader, when you discern between when it's a timely and appropriate to be on the dance floor, gaining the perspectives, and when it's more appropriate to be on the balcony and make those decisions and see the broader institutional impact and message or uh, direction? This is a great question. I like this dance floor balcony metaphor. I'd not heard that before. Um, as my relay colleagues will tell you, I'm painfully inclined towards sports metaphors at all times, <laughs> even when they're not particularly uh, useful for the, the, the question at hand. But the, the, the my equivalent of the dance floor balcony is the um, is the player captain, right? So a captain, and I'm I'm a basketball player at heart. Um, the captain on a basketball team is you know, usually on the court. They're usually mm-hmm. um, one of the better players, but they're not, they're not the coach. They're not distantly calling the shots um, in a suit or high heels from the sideline, right? They're out there with the rest of the team, but um, particularly if they're the, the, the point guard or if it's, a, if it's a crucial moment in the game, they do call the play, right? And they do bring the team together and say, here's what we, what we need to do. And so I think that metaphor of captain as leader has been one that's always that's always spoken to me. The dance floor balcony version is really interesting, right? Because um, you do need to have both views, right? Like you do need to be out there. You do need to 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 show that you too can dance, and that uh, you're not just watching from afar. Need that um, that whole scene view. I'm just not convinced that it means that really um, that you need to take yourself out of the game, right? Like a good captain can be on the floor. In fact, in basketball, it's called court being what's about to happen, adjusting the team accordingly. And I think it's that like you're in the game and you're using at all moments possible this court vision at the same time. That's that's a hard balance. And I will not say that that's something that I'm always able to do. I do think that that's part of... Um, my growing edge of leadership is like when, and now you guys are really getting the full on sports metaphors. When yes. to be like down at the block, elbows up, like trying to get the ball in the hoop, and when to be stepping back, seeing where the play is going, and mm. trying to help the team adjust accordingly. Um, that is a hard back and forth to make, particularly as. Um, the world has been changing so quickly and the play you think you see today is not the play that you need to run the the next day. That has been a real challenge this year. And I'm certain that that is uh, not my challenge alone as a leader. I I am certain that many, many of us have been feeling that particularly in the last couple of years. Yeah. I, I, by the way, too, love sports metaphors. So you could go on and on maybe if we uh, we could play (laughs) sports metaphor game, I do appreciate because I did, I do like the dance floor balcony, but I also love, I hadn't thought of it that way. Maybe I love thinking about more being on the court at all times, but perhaps being in a different, you know, area of the court under the basket or at the, you know, um, top of the key or something. So, yeah, I think that's a really, that's something interesting to think about. I think for me, if I could toss in, if we're going to be really, um, crazy about sports metaphors in a previous episode, we were talking about, um, the relational acts aspect of all this work and that, um, some of our folks we've interviewed maybe have said that they're not convinced that any of the work we're talking about can be done alone. Like we can read and read and read and practice and reflect, but until we're in relationships, we may not be able to do this work. And I was talking to Danielle. It reminded me I was a big golfer when I was a kid. Um, And the first set of lessons that you go through as like a six, seven year old are incredibly boring because you stand at the, the driving range. The pro puts a club down in front of your feet to line up your feet. And what I was saying is, and it occurred to me is, but it's still relational because I can't see what my backswing looks like and how my elbow looks. I need someone else with that perspective, right? Standing behind me to see that I'm not lined up to the the bullseye that I'm supposed to be hitting that ball. So anyway, I think, you know, regardless of whether you're on the dance floor on the balcony or on the court or on the driving range, what I take away from that is no one can do this work alone um, that you, you have to figure out how to engage 
in really respectful and, you know, empathetic and kind and smart ways with everybody around you. So, um, so I think all those sports metaphors fit in somewhere. Um, it's awesome. (laughs) And it goes back to deliberate practice. I mean, you'll have to listen to the episode on form because as we were recording it, I kept thinking back to Dr. Anders Ericsson talking about the role of feedback and relationship and, Cultivating trust, I think that's a really important part of, of feedback too, is that, you know, you could provide or receive feedback to anyone, right, the person on the street, but it, the way that it, it matters and the way that it transforms our habits, our work, the way that we show up in life is whether it's from a trusting person. So yeah, absolutely. that's something I wanted to add. Yeah, well, this is, again, um, you know, in the interest of keeping – you know, honoring Mamie's time as a very busy um, president of a university. Um, you know, I just want to thank you again, Mamie, for coming on. And I am looking forward to listening to this again, because I feel like I learned a lot about what it takes to be such an amazing leader like yourself. And um, we always in our interviews offer some space for the, you know, our guests to if there's anything we didn't ask, we didn't cover that you would love to share with our audience. I just wanted to give you that moment to, to share if you like. Well, thank you all. This has been a really welcome opportunity to reflect for me. You know, these last couple of years have felt just a mile a minute. Uh, and so it's such a gift that you all are giving to me and the other leaders that you're speaking to get a, a, a little time to think about what leadership looks like, what it means to us, where we see it going. So thank you. This has been incredibly uh, enjoyable and real opportunity for learning. Hmm. I think one thing that um, I really loved about the, the framework that you all are using for the podcast is this idea of the, the dichotomies of leadership. And I think one that's been really on my mind, particularly the last couple of years, um, is this, you know, kind of classic dichotomy of personality, right? Like, are you an optimist or a pessimist, right? Is the glass half empty or half mm-hmm. full? And I think leaders positionally, we have to be optimists. And yet uh, the last couple of years have not given many of us leader leader or otherwise much to be optimistic about. And so one of the dichotomies that's really been on my mind is this optimist realist dichotomy. And I, I don't think that's unique to leaders. I think that's that's been uh, on humanity's mind these last few years, right? How do you balance uh, hope for the future, a determination for a better future, uh, a realism, a clear-eyed realism about where we are now and the challenges that we're facing. And as for me as a leader, I think that's been one of the most challenging dichotomies to, to hold, right? Yeah. Dispositionally and positionally, <laughs> I need to be optimistic about the, the future. I need... Um, I personally need to feel a real determination to get to get to a better future. And at the same time, it's crucial to be clear eyed about where we are now and what mm-hmm. people are feeling and how we're how we're feeling. So I don't have the solution there. Yeah. But I appreciate you all making the space for leaders everywhere to be real about some of the challenging dichotomies that we hold. Yeah, well, thank you for that. That's such a nice way to conclude the podcast. And hopefully maybe we can make some more space. Maybe in the future, I would love to talk about that dichotomy. I think Danielle and I both have questions and wonderings about that optimism. And for me in particular, without getting into it too much, it's also a balancing of optimism with your own authenticity, Mm. because then you're your team starts to call BS. If you're, you know, if that optimism sort of leans too far in the middle of a pandemic, for example. Um, So absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot we could dig into. So maybe, maybe we can talk you into coming back at another time to have that conversation. So. um, Well, I would look forward to it and I'm really grateful to you. This was such a learning opportunity and thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Danielle. It was great. So um, this has been another episode of Tell Me This, the Paradox Playlist. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. So sincere Under the glaciers Your last year Someday
to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.